Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. I want to bring a complex message to you over the next few moments. I want to talk about a throne addiction, and, and I want to juxtapose two individuals in the Old Testament. One of those is Jonah, who was obviously addicted to the throne that he had set up in his heart, and he was the only person that was going to sit on it. And then we have the king of Nineveh, who was an actual king, who had an actual throne, and he sat upon his throne. And God did this tremendous work in Jonah's life, but it still wasn't effectual because of Jonah's throne addiction. And then the king of Nineveh, he heard a brief eight-worded message from Jonah, and that message was so powerful that repentance came upon him, and he stepped down from his literal throne, and he repented. And so I want to weave this complexity together. It is in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. It would be well worth your time to read, and it's a short book of only four chapters. And so I'm going to call this the one thing that we must do is to step down from our thrones. And I want to look at a physical throne with the king of Nineveh, and then, of course, the throne that we all are addicted to is sitting on the throne of our hearts. And that's what a throne addiction is. It's a person who refuses to allow God to be king of their lives. They will not relinquish their throne to the only rightful authority over them. The addict to the throne has fully bought into the first lie of Satan. You can be a God. That is in Genesis 3.5. And then after the fall, humanity came with a pre-wired condition. It is a craving to ascend to our thrones, and I will be the only person to sit upon it. Now, in the theological realm, we call this total depravity which is why we must be born a second time. This is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you must be born again, and I paraphrase, because you have a throne addiction. God needs to sit on the throne of your life, not you. But the bad news is that becoming born a second time, it doesn't insulate us from the encroachments of a throne addiction. We need God every day. Now, being born again is a critical step. It is an essential step. But once a person is born a second time, they begin to grow as a newborn infant. And we know that we will not be perfected until glorification, until we get to heaven. So the implication is very clear. Salvation is a good start, but not a total solution for a life on earth that wants to live well and spread God's fame. The truth is we are tenaciously loyal to ourselves and we will fight vigorously though mostly in subtle ways, to retain ownership of our thrones upon which we can prop our lives. Now, one of the ways you will see the Game of Thrones acted out is when sin entangles somebody. And as odd as it may sound, being caught in or confronted for sin, that's not always enough to motivate a person to relinquish his perceived rights to the throne of his life. I mean, you would think that you get busted, you get caught, you get confronted for sin, and it's like, yes, uh, I've, I've done that, I confess that, uh, it is so true, and I'm going to relinquish my life to God. Well, 
it's not that simple for most of us. Paul conveyed this tension when he wrote to the Corinthians, and though he was calling them on the carpet for their sin, he was fully aware of that tension, that the Corinthians were tenaciously loyal to their lives as well. This is how Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, later on, I want to talk about the king of Nineveh. This is exactly what he was doing. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so you're going to see an HD presentation of what godly grief looks like in the king of Nineveh. But this sentence continues in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, we understand this as godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And in the last part of this sentence, well, that is, that is Jonah. Jonah has not fully repented. He looked like he repented. He acted like he repented. And behaviorally, he is going the right direction now. And so he did turn 180 degrees. He was going to Tarshish. Now he's going to Nineveh. That looks like repentance. But as you read on down in the text, it's like, well, his body has changed, behaviorally he's changed, but his mind, his heart has not changed yet. And so Jonah was such a man who struggled with the tension of godly and worldly sorrow. And so the Corinthians, Jonah, and me, we're all similar. God gave Jonah a clear directive, go to Nineveh. Jonah refused, and so he headed in the other direction to Tarshish. The Lord is a relentless redeemer, and so he mercifully hurled a storm at Jonah, like a man throwing a spear at a target. Jonah was the target to get his attention. It didn't work. Jonah was tenaciously loyal to the throne addiction. To further punctuate the need, For Jonah to come to his senses, then God prepared a big fish to swallow him. And so after these three appointed events, the call of God on his life to go to Nineveh, the storm he hurled at him, and the big fish that he prepared for him, it seems like Jonah would have repented after these injunctions from the Lord. But he doesn't. He He still continues in his foolishness. And as you continue the narrative, you see Jonah being spit out of the fish, and he's booking it toward Nineveh. And so you would think that maybe this man has repented. But the questions are, has Jonah changed? Yeah, he's heading in the right direction. And sometimes we will see that in our lives or maybe the lives of our friends where they are confronted about something and it appears that they have changed. Like the kid that says, I am standing, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Jonah is the man. When he finally gets to where God wants him to go, he utters one of the shortest calls to repentance in the Bible. It's only eight words. It's the length of the most succinct social media blurb. By the way, if you read that passage in context while factoring in how the other prophets in the Old Testament typically blared out God's call to repentance to their demographic, Jonah did a poor job. 
And some of the other prophets would use a chapter or two or three to call the country or their demographic to repentance. And Jonah, in a half-hearted way, with a half-baked message, went into Nineveh. He didn't go all the way into Nineveh. He just went a day's journey. Didn't go to the three days that it took to go all the way across the city. And he gave a short, eight-worded call. He was broken, but he was not broken. He repented, but he did not repent. Now, that raises two critical questions for us to ponder as we reflect on our acts of repentance. Is it possible to be grateful to God for rescuing us from our sins, bringing us out of the ocean, bringing us out of the fish, sending us in the right direction, but we have not changed? Have you ever had a close call? God got your attention, but you drifted back to old paths soon after the crisis was over. Jonah changed his behavior. He's booking it toward Nineveh, but did not change his mind about those nasty Ninevites. Now, we know this because of what happened in chapter 4. Let me share it with you. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly as he was angry. That does not sound like a repentant man who had just come out of the fish and now is in Nineveh. It displeased Jonah exceedingly as he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, meaning he prayed out of an angry heart. And he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster, repenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Kill me, God, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, as you hear this passage, you sense the feeling that, that these are not the words of a man whom God successfully broke to the point to where he had a heart for a pagan people or a pagan city. He didn't. And I'm not suggesting that we should bash, bash Jonah here. I mean, how could I? I see myself in him. There have been many times in my life when God got my attention but as the crisis abated, I reverted to my old paths. Repentance has to go much deeper than personal awareness of sin or our desire to be extricated from our problems. Repentance has to look more than a man booking it to Nineveh. Repentance has to go down into the heart. Perhaps you have heard the illustration regarding temporal repentance. It goes like this. The airplane was going down and everybody on board cried out to God. After the tragedy was averted, the people returned to their old ways. Now, I'm also not bashing those airplane-confessing people either because I am like them too. I mean, the truth is, I can be a temporary repenter. In times of anguish, disappointment, our impulse is to reach out to God. Dear God, the plane is going down. But then when the crisis is over, we climb back on our thrones. There can be a deception to helplessness. You see the construction of that idea that our helplessness can deceive others. It's a game that we can play. This technique is not repentance, but it is a mind game. It's a mind game that will gaslight the other side, hoping to avert discipline. It is a method of repenting 
to get what we want. And in this case, manipulation would be a synonym for repenting because it's not true biblical repentance. You look helpless, and that's the deception of helplessness to get what you want without genuine heart change. This problem is even more complex when we think our repentance is sincere. Now, being blind to what you're doing, that would be even a more significant problem. If you have children, you likely have seen the deception of helplessness in action. For example, when a child perceives the threat of personal suffering, a storm is being hurled into his life, meaning the dad threatens to discipline them if they do not change. The child can appear to be helpless and show a willingness to change. That is the deception of helplessness. They give you their most effective mopey face, a response learned through ill motive and much practice, hoping that you relent from disciplining them. And then once the crisis is over, the child cautiously reverts to what they were doing before the storm showed up in their room, a.k.a. dad. The stakes are higher as we age, and the consequences are more severe. It's no longer about manipulating our parents to get more playtime or to get out of taking a bath. Adult throne games can have generational and even eternal consequences. I want to give you just three scenarios. They're fictional, where we can play this game of thrones in order to get what we want. It's not genuine repentance. It is the deception of helplessness. For example, we mess up our marriage and we do damage control, but we don't change. We blow it up with our children, and we patch things up, but we do not change. We get in trouble at work and get out of it, but we do not change. And although Jonah did not have a heart change, God accomplished his purposes despite his prophet. Jonah arrived in Nineveh. He gave an eight-word message. That's Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. And some of the most brutal people on the face of the earth repented. This passage is phenomenal. And so now what I would like to do is just start transitioning from this half-hearted, half-baked, repentant person who's changed behaviorally because he's headed to Nineveh, but his heart has not repented at all. And the transition to an eight-worded call to repentance, and then the effect that that message had on Nineveh. Now, obviously, what's implied here is that God will use us even in a half-baked, half-hearted way to do a phenomenal work. It would take three days for a person to cover the entire city of Nineveh. Jonah only went a day's journey. He preached a short message. He was doing the bare minimum. I am not going all the way through this city, and I'm not going to give a three-chapter essay as far as a call to repentance to these people, but that did not stop God. Jonah preached to the king of Nineveh with a more concise message than the most succinct social media blurb. The conviction from the Lord was so profound and compelling that the king was motivated to repent. This is how it's laid out in the book of Jonah. So Jonah arose after he was spit out of the fish. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, one-third of the way in. And he called out, 
eight words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, here it is, believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That is Jonah chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and 5. The contrast between what the Lord brought into Jonah's life, the call, the storm, the fish, and what he brought into the king's life, an eight-worded message, is absolutely striking. Neither the wind, the waves, or the well could bring genuine repentance to Jonah. But the king barely caught a half-hearted, half-baked message and was devastated by sovereign Lord. The king broke down and biblically repented, which should bring you hope, by the way. It's not true that you have to be devastated by a catastrophe to change Jonah. Jonah met destruction, and he did not repent. The king heard the equivalent of a whisper and was a broken man. Yeah, God can bring the thunder, and he can be a still, small voice. It's up to us whether we want to be a player or to be a repenter. Jonah was a player. The king of Nineveh was a repenter. It says this in 3.6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. If you want to understand how repentance works, there it is in a short sentence. It's very clarifying. What the king of Nineveh did, it would be so instructive for all of us. Here are some of the highlights. He was a king, point number one. Point number two, he had a throne. Number three, a king sits on his throne. Number four, it is rare for a king to get off his throne in public. Number five, it's even more extraordinary that he would take off his robe in society. And number six, if that's not enough, it is shocking that he would descend from his throne and sit in an ash heap. Now, that's mind-boggling. His repentance and Jonah's repentance could not be more antithetical. It's impressive humility. It's biblical repentance. It's an echo of what we see in the story of the prodigal son. The king went further than personal repentance. There's a, there's a hyperbole to what the king did, which punctuates that this is what genuine repentance looks like. He decreed that all the people and all the animals should repent too. Now, Animals can't repent, but the point is quite clear. The king was serious about repentance, as seen in the Bible's most extreme caricature of repentance. We see this in Luke 15, where the prodigal says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We see the hyperbole here. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Well, this is not going to happen. But what you see here is genuine repentance, very similar to what you see with the king of Nineveh. Personal repentance should not be questionable. That's the point. Everyone should perceive it in you. I mean, if your husband comes home in sackcloth, sits in an ash heap, and decrees that the dog, the cat, and the goldfish must repent too, then you probably are looking at a broken man. Unfortunately, too many times we do not see radical repentance. We experience lukewarm apologies. 
Radical repentance will compel you to relinquish your throne by standing up from your throne, stepping off your throne, and sitting in ashes. And like the prodigal after him, the king did not want to stay on his throne any longer. He was real. He had refused to hear the word of the Lord and not repented. And then his, if, he, if he had done that, his life would have continued down a path of destruction. Staying on our thrones is the path to ruin. Back to Jonah. Now that we have a picture of what repentance looks like and what it doesn't, the first thing that Jonah needed to do was to repent of his repentance because his repentance was not genuine. Semi-repentance, half-hearted repentance is not repentance. And so now he has an additional problem, a complicating problem that he needs to take care of. The complicated problem is he needs to repent of his repentance. This kind of repentance that he had is damage control or maybe image preservation, but it is not biblical repentance. One of the most common ways you will experience half-hearted repentance is in the expression, I'm sorry. The wicked king is still on the throne when repentance is watered down to an apology. Let me illustrate. Biff sins against his wife, Mabel. He gets angry at her. Mabel is upset. And after an extended argument, Biff tells Mabel that he is sorry. Mabel accepts his apology, and there is faux peace in the home. The problem with this scenario is that there was no repentance. Biff never stepped down from his throne. No, indeed, he did not disrobe. He did not sit in an ash heap. He smoothed things over with an apology. In these types of repentance scenarios, the person rarely asks God for forgiveness. I mean, at best, it is a watered-down, horizontal, peacemaking event. Biff navigated his marriage back to its pre-existing condition. There is a temporary peace. But Biff does not change. He needs to repent of his repentance, and his marriage does not experience restoration. Now, Mabel, on the other hand, is glad that Biff is no longer yelling at her. Yes, I get that. And, she, and because of that, she's willing to accept the peace, the faux peace, treaty over godly repentance. Biff will not step off his throne because he's addicted to his ego and his desires. He also loves his image and reputation. The first thing he needs to do is to repent of his repentance. If Biff does this, maybe God will change him. Biff's story is not about how the king thought about repentance. He took it seriously, and he pulled out all the stops. He believed if he genuinely repented, maybe God would repent too. Perhaps God would turn his wrath away from him and his city. This is what he said in 3.9. I read it a while ago. Who knows? God may turn and relent. God may repent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, this text is fascinating. This is what the king is saying literally. The king is saying God may turn, relent, turn. 
The Hebrew words here are shuv, naham, and shuv. Shuv is the picture word for repentance. Naham is the actual word for repentance. There is redund intentional redundancy here. Now, as you know, God's repentance is different from ours. And so when we think about God repenting, we have to remember that, that we're talking about two different things. God is holy. He does not sin to where He needs to repent of wrong actions. But He can change His mind, and He does this all the time. It works like this. God decrees that you will pay for that sin, whatever it is, when you do it. He decrees that you're going to pay for that sin. If you repent, God will change His mind and not punish you. That's the idea. The text says God may turn, repent, turn. The hope that we see in this passage is the interaction between what people do and what God will do. When people turn from their evil way, God will repent of the evil that He said that He would bring to them. And when it comes to God's eternal decrees, His promises to keep His covenant, He will not relent or repent. But in some situations, God will change His mind. You see this clearly in Jeremiah. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it if it, it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. This concept is amazingly hopeful for us. God will not make us pay for our sins if we will genuinely repent. Though He is sovereign and in total control of all things, He responds to the choices that people make which can determine the direction history will take. An illustration of this was God's covenant promise to His people, the Israelites. He promised Abraham the land of Canaan. However, some of the people did not see that promise fulfilled because of the choices that they made. God kept His sovereign promise, but human responsibility was allowed to factor into the course of history. God is the author of His sovereignty, meaning He is free to respond and interact with people's choices, but that does not alter the predetermined ends that He has decreed. The point of Jonah 3 is we serve an amazing God, and we should be impressed by Him. We live with the sovereign God of the universe who will bring all things to a predetermined end. Yet, He will change His mind if you repent. He is responsive to His people. He always works in ways that are for our good and for His glory. He will be receptive to you too. It's your choice. You can play the game of thrones, or you can repent of half-hearted repentance and do legitimate business with God. If you play a game, God will not change His mind you will incur His disfavor. If you get up, step down, disrobe, sit in ashes, and ask the goldfish to repent, God will change His mind. 
and you will experience His amazing grace. If you want to read what I just shared with you, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is, One Thing We Must Do, Step Down from Our Thrones. I want to wrap up here. Let me take a swallow of water. I want to wrap up here by giving you just a, a few CTAs, things to respond to, five thoughts. Number one, how have you played the Game of Thrones in your life? Think about the life of Jonah. He changed behaviorally, externally. He went to Nineveh, but his heart was not in it. And he was even angry at God. It was very clear in the passage. He was so frustrated, exceedingly frustrated with God. Perhaps it would be good to discuss this concept with a friend, playing the Game of Thrones. It's hard for all of us. I'm not saying this as though I'm different from you. I'm not different from Jonah either. This is a battle. Oh, wretched man that I am. We just need to have the conversation. Number two, what strikes you about all the work that led to Jonah's repentance and the minimal work that led to the king's? Now, that part is fascinating to me. I mean, the extent that God would go to to bring his servant to repentance and the little bit that it took to bring the king to repentance is absolutely phenomenal. Number three, what does it mean to repent of your repentance before you can repent authentically? This is a deep discussion that we should have with each other because sometimes our repentance does not go down to the depth that it should be. I illustrated it with Biff and Mabel where his repentance was, I'm sorry. That was game playing. He still wanted to be on his throne. He has not relinquished his rights. He was doing behavioral modification. He was doing conflict resolution for pragmatic purposes. He wanted a particular result. And so the repentance that he did, he needs to repent of that and do actual repentance. What does that mean in your own life and in those that you care for? And then finally, number four, talk about a time when you had worldly sorrow but not godly sorrow. That's similar to the previous question, but you really want to distinguish what is worldly sorrow? What is going on in the heart of a person who is emulating that? And they could be doing it ignorantly. Think about this. If you don't know how to repent, you don't have a process or understanding of repentance, you only know to do what you know to do. There is a mentoring issue here. And so you want to be careful, be charitable uh, when a person is not digging down into their repentance and truly changing. They don't know how. And I find this happening a lot. Now, of course, there can be game playing it too, that they're doing damage control. But juxtaposing worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is important, and that would be a good discussion to have. If you want to get this article, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com. And uh, you can print it off, you can read it, you can send the link to someone if you wish. The title of it is, One Thing That We Must Do, Step Down From Our Thrones. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.